2 Peter 1, 12-15. I intend always to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the qualities of faith, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting of this tent of mine will be soon, as our Master Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Thanks, Rory. And Bethany for starting us off. Sorry, I was like, who did I give that to? Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Second Peter. Um, today we begin a season of immersing ourselves within, uh, trying to chew on, if you will, the second letter of Jesus' friend Peter. Um, if you remember, we went through the first letter at the beginning of the summer. Chaz, Chaz kind of led us through that. Um, and um, now we kind of enter into the second letter. Um, but it's a letter that... Uh, <laughs> that comes with a little bit of baggage, um, uh, has a bit of a reputation, uh, at least in the, the church world. Um, and, um, and so one professor and scholar, a pretty respected guy named Douglas Moo, he contends um, that, um, that Second Peter often finds itself as the last of most people's list of favorite books in the New Testament. Um, mainly, maybe for you that may or may not be true, but maybe because you, you're not familiar with it, um, but, but even those who are familiar with it and who have read it tend to think of Second Peter um, as a bit of an oddity. Um, Moose's assessment's not unique, after all. All you need to do is grab a commentary on Second Peter. Um, really, any commentary since the Reformation, even a few before, um, and you'll find confirmation of, of Peter David's commentary and how he opens it. He says this, that Second Peter has been termed the ugly stepchild of the New Testament. It's not just that the extended prophetic denunciation, the censure, is unpalpable to some people, and the apparent destruction of the universe in chapter 3 is disturbing. If you don't know um, Second Peter, there is some parts that are going to be like, they will run into you, like, oh, what is going on here? What is he talking about? Angels being cast out of heaven and into Tartarus and like bound and, and, and destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then all of a sudden um, it seems like all the elemental things of the earth uh, burning up. Um, people kind of find that a little confusing, a little disturbing, rightly so to some extent. But it's not just that, says Peter Davids. He says, but many readers wonder whether the book is even genuine to begin with. <laughs> if, why is it even a part of our canon? Whether or not one determines that the work is or is not Peter's is often ignored in the scholarly world. As John Eliot writes, the issue comes down to this. Down to the present day, its canonical status, that is, its inclusion in our Bible and theological significance, seem to have remained more theory than fact. <laughs> and so, so I, I say all that to, to kind of point out that this book in church history, church practice, um, hasn't got a lot of fanfare. Um, there are going to be some things that feel a bit odd to us as we read it, as it's been experienced as an oddity within the, the faith family history. But here's this... The, here's something that, that I want to point out. Despite its perceived oddity, 2 Peter is actually my favorite epistle. And that may say more about me than it does about 2 Peter, um, but it's actually one of my favorites. Outside of the four Gospels, it's the book I've come back to most often in my life of faith. It's the one I come back to on a regular basis when I'm struggling in my faith, when I'm wanting to know depths of my faith, when I'm trying to figure out what it means to live out my faith. It's the one that crosses my mind most often in conversations with you and pastoring and all those things. Second Peter is a book that is, is just a book that I've just immersed myself in. It's my favorite epistle. 
It also has a significant place in our faith family story. It was the first book we studied together some eight, and eight years ago. Um, the first book we looked at that launched us into following Jesus together, which again, may explain more of our oddity, uh, may say more about us than it does about the, the book of Second Peter. But here's what, what, what I think, that despite its unpalpable and disturbing nature um, and, and how that appears really in the micro of Second of Peter, if you just get lost in the minutiae of Second Peter, um, I tend to agree with John Calvin, who, though he had plenty of issues with Peter, um, he did see this in the book. He said, um, in every part of the epistle, the majesty of the Spirit of Christ appears. I think that's true. I think that's what we'll discover as we immerse ourselves in it, that everywhere within this letter, the epistle, the majesty of the Spirit of Christ appears. I think that's Peter's goal. I mean, Peter knew Jesus in ways that, that, um, that we would long to know Jesus, right? He walked with Jesus in ways that we'd love to walk with Jesus. He saw Jesus in life, in death, in resurrection, in ways that we would that we often like, want to possess in ourselves. And so transformed is Peter in this experience of life with Jesus that it can't help come from him, this exuding of the majesty of Jesus on every page, on every letter, in every sentence. And not in some sort of weird way, like uberly churchy way. That's one of the reasons we like Peter, right? He's, the, he's kind of the least churchy of the disciples. Um, has anybody watched the, the show The Chosen? We're only an episode in, so I can't, I can't comment a lot on it. Um, but it was funny that the way they portrayed Peter in the first episode, right? Like, he's a gambler, a fighter, like, going against the Shabbat law, like, all these kind of things to kind of just make, th- like, he, he's kind of your stereo, he's like, your, he's like hey, I'm just a, I'm just a guy. And I'm, I'm a sharp guy, I've got, I've got things, but, like, he makes deals with, with some of the Romans, like, he, he plays the game, he knows how to play the game of life. And to some extent, enjoy it, and, and maybe... Um, uh, exceed or excel at it within the context and confines of his, his own little world. Um, but he's kind of, in some ways, just normal. I mean, we see that in his stories, right? Like, he's the one who proclaims and sees Jesus clearly, um, and then the very next moment is rebuked by Jesus for um, trying to, to take control of Jesus. Like, he exudes moments of courage and also moments of betrayal. I mean, isn't that all of us at times in our own faith? Moments where we feel like we can do anything because we know God is with us, we know we're, we know we're walking with God, and then moments where we're actually just kind of becoming a part of the crowd um, because we're intimidated, because we're fearful, because we're not really sure. I mean, that seems to be Peter. And so this, the way Peter exudes Jesus is a way of exuding Jesus that isn't, like Paul's super sharp, right? I love Paul. Um, and Paul writes in a way where he experienced to know Jesus, and we know that, right? But he does it from a framework of, of almost a brilliance, right? And Peter's actually pretty brilliant, too. He's not, he's not unsavvy. Um, but he's one who's, who, again, has just been so attached to Jesus that what flows out of him is the Spirit of Jesus, which is pretty incredible. And the longer I linger in Peter's reminders in the light of the word and testimony of Jesus, the more clearly I see myself, others in the world we share. Because I think that's what Peter does. He sees himself, the world, and others that he's walking with, with clarity because of his attachment to Jesus. In this ugly stepchild, I've discovered a vividness of our place and calling, which is only slightly overshadowed by the amazing grace of our Father through Jesus that shines forth. 
there's a clarity of place and calling that Peter has, and that he offers, and that he extends, that he desires for his fellow members of the faith family, that I think is important for us. And so rather than hearing the words of a negative Nancy Spunoff classical church um, condemnation, which is how 2 Peter 2 is taken a lot, um, I hear words from a spiritual friend pulling back the curtain on um, the reality of the fact that we're all followers and that often the, the people that we follow, the things that we follow, the ideas that we follow behind them is a Wizard of Oz, and not so much Jesus, right? He pulls back the curtain, shows, sheds light, and in so doing so, also sheds light on us, that our hearts are just as malleable to the context of our day and time, to the stories and the desires and the wants of our world as those that we tend to follow. I hear in um, the words of, of, um, um, of Peter, um, not a doomsday declaration, but rather this decisive acting of God in history to be patient, to, to see the reality of the, um, the movement of history, but also within that reality, God's intimate work, his patient work, his desire and consistency and steadfastness. I hear the, in this odd letter one who's walked with Jesus in the real world, in the dirt and dignity of daily life. One who is on his way somewhere. Peter's on his way somewhere. Think about that. Even Peter knows he hasn't arrived. He walked with Jesus, again, in ways that we can only desire, not experience in the fullness yet. And yet he realizes he's on his way somewhere and has discovered in his apprenticeship to the master, to the son of man, that divine and human that we talked about last month in, um, in our meals together, that being on our way to somewhere else is our peculiar human way of being here in the world. Being on our way to somewhere else is our peculiar human way of being here in this world and is our way of becoming partakers in the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What Peter says? Listen, I hear um, in his friendly reminders, and he uses that word a lot. <laughs> he uses the word remember quite a bit. He begins his letter, he ends his letter uh, in, in with the desire to remind us, to stir us up by way of reminder. And I hear in these friendly reminders, and his stirring up a, of a sincere mind by way of reminder, a spiritual companion speaking plainly to his fellow followers. And that's important. Peter speaks pretty plainly in this letter. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why Peter's so confusing to church people, <laughs> um, especially to, to scholars and to people who are familiar with the Old Testament and the history of faith. And, and honestly, like to, to be honest, like even the differences between his first letter and his second. But he speaks plainly to his followers. He couches nothing in the learned but still to them foreign language of the Hebrew Scriptures. You remember, even his first letter, he's writing not to primarily Hebrew people but to Greek people. People that had a familiarity with the Hebrew stories, they, they had not, they're not ignorant of the, the scriptures, they're not, um, but the scriptures weren't the life-shaping stories that, that formed their life stories. They weren't the stories that set in motion of how the earth began and how the earth moved forward and what the values were and what the intents were and all those things. They knew them, they were learning them, those were important things, but, but they weren't the primary ones. And in this letter, writing to the same group of people, the Greek people, he doesn't use Scripture. 
He alludes almost exclusively when he does only to the origin stories of Genesis. You can look in 2 Peter. I'll have some, some up on the screen for us, but if you're at home, you can see these. In 2 Peter 2, he says, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus, but preserved Noah with seven others when he brought the flood. What is, it reminds us of the story of the flood, right? The origin story of, of the beginning in Genesis 6 through 9. Or if we keep reading, um, he turns the story then from the, this origin of story of Genesis 6 through 9 into the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and righteous Lot. Now, we tend to think of that as just the chapter 19 of Genesis, but if you go back into the story, it starts in chapter 13. Like where, where Lot's being drawn out of companionship with Abraham into Sodom and Gomorrah, where he's taken by their kings and held for ransom. So like there's this whole long, deep history story that's getting told of like the formation of God's people and how God rescues those that he's called out and to follow him already in the Genesis story. That there's, there, there's an opposition that wants to hold them away from the thing that would lead them into flourishing, right? And so he has the story of the flood and of angels and demons of how the earth came about and, and its, its conflict nature moves into this, this nature of even those in the faith like Lot, a righteous man, as Peter will call him, um, who's drawn into something that pulls him out of the presence of God, out of life with God, out of the one who's following God. And then he'll end, um, Peter does in chapter 3, um, with a reminder of the beginning, the beginning in Genesis 1, that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And in so doing, he'll remind us both of the Genesis account in chapter 1, but also in chapter 9, where God promises not to flood again, but to restore. See, even the way Peter talks about and uses the Scripture is just in these brief little reminders of stories, of counter-stories to the stories that the, his readers would have heard and would have grown up knowing, Right? And we'll see that as we go a little further. The only exception to, to the a Genesis story, an origin story that Peter uses, is the story of Balaam. In 2 Peter, 5, uh, 2 Peter 2, verse 15 and 16, he says, They have followed the way of Balaam, who was rebuked, and this is one of everybody's favorite stories, by a donkey who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's ignorance. The only exception to the origin stories that Peter uses in reference to Scripture are the, are, is a story of a non-Jew prophet who speaks to God, hears God, Balaam hears God, and does only what God says. But he does so in a way that's, whose heart is twisted, who wants other things than actually God, and God with him, and God for him. That's the story of Balaam. That he's, he's one who speaks on behalf of God, and only speaks what God gives him, but whose heart is twisted, even in his obedience. But God, in his kindness, rebukes him with a donkey. <laughs> and there's only one quote of Scripture in 2 Peter. Um, one quote from the Old, the Old Testament. It's given in combination with a cultural quotation, which is ironic. If you look at 2 Peter 2, verse 22, Peter says this. He says, what the true proverb says has happened to them. Speaking of the, the false teachers and prophets, he says, the dog returns to his own vomit. That's Proverbs 26.11. The dog returns to his own. It's a habit of dogs to, um, to get rid of something that's been bad to their stomach that's not fit right, but then come back to it and kind of smell it, sniff around it, and if any of their, like, our little eight-month-old dog eat it. 
right? And so, yeah, lovely picture, isn't it? And so like, hey, listen, sometimes we act like that. Like we expel the thing that's upsetting, that's not good for us, and yet we return to it. Like that's what's happening to these teachers, he said. They, they've, they've seen what was good, but now they're coming back to the very thing that they've, they've disregarded. But then the second part of it says, and the sow washes by wallowing in the mire. Now, some of, the, some of the translations might add in there, like she returns, cleanses herself, and then returns, but that's not in the actual, the, in the actual text. Because this comes from Heraclitus, a, a, a Greek um, 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 uh, philosopher. Um, but it's a parable that's Greek because it talks about pigs, and Jews don't talk about pigs. <laughs> but it's just the idea of, like, how does a pig clean themselves? Does any, has anybody ever seen how a pig cleans themselves? Yeah, they get dirty. Like, it's, it's ironic and not clean, right? And so it's, it is filthy. That's why pigs are filthy animals. That's why they were unclean to the Jews. That's why it was easy to make them unclean, because it was pretty clear why they were unclean. They rolled around in their own stuff, and that's how they cleaned themselves, right? And so, ironically, Peter speaks in a way that would have been very easy for his, his people to understand without quoting a lot of Scripture. And this is why Peter sometimes gets confusing for us. Because he doesn't quote a lot of the Scripture that we're used to. But it's, just, it's like this. It's just Peter recognizes that his time in this tent was short. That's what he said, right? That's what Rory read for us. That his time in this body is running out. Like he knows that, that he's going to die soon. And he wanted one final time to say clearly and concisely what he desired for his faith family. And so he says it in a manner, in a language that they could easily grasp. They didn't have to do a lot of referencing to get. They would pick it up. Again, he's already laid the foundation of some of these origin stories in his first letter. They've had enough interaction with the Hebrew scriptures that these stories are familiar to them. They, they, get the, they would get these stories right off the top of their head. And then he, even when he quotes scripture, he quotes it in connection to their culture so they don't have to wonder what it means. Peter's first letter is full of scriptural references, quotes, allusions, and the like, and was undoubtedly helpful and necessary in forming his family of faith. It's not that Peter doesn't value scripture. In fact, in 2 Peter, he'll even, he'll even go into and talk about um, the, the validity of Scripture, that in chapter 2, verse 19, we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Like he's, he's not void, like voiding Scripture in the life of the faith community. He's just after something more quickly. He wants something more, more foundational, more at the heart of the people that he's talking to. He connected their story in the first letter to the story of Scripture, to the story of Jesus. He showed how their lived faith in following Jesus' posture and sharing his suffering and service, sacrifice and submission to one another was the source of their and their community's hope in the context unfriendly to the way of Jesus. That was what the first letter was. But now his desire was not to lay a foundation, but instead to make steady what was built upon that foundation. His desire in the second letter was not to lay a foundation, but to rather come back and say, let's just make sure this foundation stays firm. Let's just make sure that what we're building on this foundation stays firm and sure. And so he speaks in a language that needed no special interpretation, nor required any looking up of references for his faith family. He uses words that name them, 
Name their place and purpose, and yes, name the opposition to what they are after in their life of faith. And in so doing, Peter speaks to you and me as well. For like the faith family to whom this letter was penned, we too are Greek. Our fluency is not the language of the Hebrews. Our cultural shaping myths are not the ones of the Scriptures. And though we know the stories of the Scriptures, we are in need of clarity amid the muddy waters of daily living if our faith in Jesus is to be fruitful and effective, which is what Peter was after. Again, look, look with me in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. This is why Peter is writing this letter, why he's reminding of these, these qualities, and we'll get to these qualities in, in the coming days. But he says, For if these qualities of faith are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our master Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Isn't that what we all want? <laughs> a life of faith that's effective and fruitful? Just, just a life that's fect- effective and fruitful, right? Don't we want what, like, all the energy that we put in knowing Jesus to bear fruit, to accomplish something? I mean, I, I know most of you, right? I know, I, I know all of you. Like, I know, <laughs> I know what you're after, right? And Peter says, well, that's what I'm giving you. Like, I'm trying to make it really clear that this is how you get what you want. This is, this is what allows the, the, the life with Jesus that you long for, that you put so much effort and energy into, to be fruitful and effective. You see, Peter knows as the scriptures and Jesus he loves testify that we're followers. That we're all followers. Better said, maybe we're mimickers. And that is that, that, um, that the desires that drive us, that propel our daily living, stem from our environment and those who influence it. Adapting um, Rene Girard, um, we can say that Peter testifies this, that human beings are not autonomous individuals. As much as we would like to be completely autonomous, we're not. We are constituted, that is, put together and shaped by the other, that is, by parents, authority figures, peers, rivals, whom we internalize as models and who we become the, un- become the unconscious bias basis of our desires. That's more complicated than Peter would say it, <laughs> right? But, but what Gerard is saying is what Peter already knows through Jesus that we are not ourselves on our own. We are ourselves because we're in relationship to others. And that Scripture has testified to this from the very beginning. That this is not something that was just discovered in Jesus, but actually the Scriptures have opened us up to this reality from the very beginning. And that mimicking, being shaped by those around us, is not abnormal or unnatural or even unholy. But we are immersed, as Peter said in his first letter, amidst a context that is unfriendly to the very things that God wants for us, the very things that we want in life with God. So how is it that we can become ourselves fully if our, what we want and what shapes what we want or propels us forward is shaped so much by the things and people around us? Well, it means that those who we follow and how we follow is important. Now, desire, again, is a word that Peter uses a lot. He uses it in various ways. He talks about it with the word passions. He talks about it with the word sensuality. Um, but it's, it's a word that he used like five or six times in the first letter. He's going to use multiple times in this letter. So it's a word we've got to pay attention to. 
Um, it's actually the word that he kind of starts off um, the experience of life with God as a word that kind of helps us compare what it looks like um, to, the, for um, experiencing life with God to its fullest and what it looks like to experience less than life with God. In 2 Peter 1 verse 4 says this, You may become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's how Peter starts it off. He says, listen, Jesus has promised you all these things. Jesus has given this life to you. You can become partakers of this life with Jesus. Why? Because you've escaped the corruption, the distortion of a life off the mark, of, the, of wanting that's, that's off of what God wants. What, what God wants for you and what you want in relation to God. And then he ends, he closes his letter talking about those on the other side. He says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. It's kind of funny. Scoffers will come with scoffing. Um, following their own sinful desires. The thing that keeps them from experiencing the invitation to life, life in the fullest, life as it's meant to be, is that they haven't it's not that they are just simply doing things that are off the mark. It's that their desires are off the mark. What they want is off the mark. What we desire is not merely a matter of autonomy, of internal choice, but rather is conditioned, shaped, shared, developed, even clarified by the context of relationships. This does not mean that freedom of the will is not possible or that individuality is lost, or that it, but rather that it comes in the context of others. Humankind that was created in God's image is not intended to be identical to other or exist in slavish subservience to the other. But as we saw in Peter's first letter in the life of Jesus, we're to mutually submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. We're to serve and to sacrifice for the other. And in doing so, that's how we get to live our full lives in Jesus. But however, since we, are, we first learn prim, um, primarily through mimicking others, our freedom depends on who we follow. Our freedom depends on who we follow. And that's what Peter knows, right? He knows that we're by nature followers and that our freedom depends on who we follow. We're by nature ones who get caught up into wanting and mimicking those that are around us, especially those who influence us, those who know us, those who shape us relationally, those who are in some ways like after the thing that we think we want. Positively and negatively. And so, Peter comes back into the reality that, that there is only one to follow. There's only one to follow. And we, listen, we say this all the time, right? Like, Jesus is the only one. But Peter's like, no, I actually have lived this. Like, I've experienced this. Like, there is only one, only one to follow. Only one who, look with me at 2 Peter verse 1, 3, whose divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to and by his own glory and excellence. Or as another translation writes it, everything that goes into a life pleasing God has been miraculously given to us by getting to know personally and intimately, and I would argue collectively and corporately, the one who invited us to God the best invitation we've ever received. That's what Peter's saying. Listen, like we're followers. We're going to follow. We can't not follow. It's the, it's, the re, it's the way we're created. So it matters who we follow. It matters discerning who we follow. 
And not just in a combative way, but in a way that can only be known through the person of Jesus. As you'll notice as we go through this, Peter does never, never names particular false teachers and prophets. He, he, doesn't per, he doesn't give you specific names of people. In fact, part of the issue with the book of 2 Peter in, in the academic world is nobody really knows like, who he's talking to. <laughs> what is he talking about? Who are these false teachers? They're not, they're, they're not named. We're not even really sure. Is this Epicureanism? Is this some form of Gnosticism? Like, nobody really knows because that's not Peter's point. Peter's point is showing the people that, that his faith family is following He's shedding light on them through the light of Jesus. He's not comparing and contrasting them to some philosophical argument or, or anything. He's actually, if we read the letter, we'll see in the flow of the letter. He helps us see that Jesus shows clearly everything, including the reality of those that we follow. And that in the life of Jesus, as he'll start with, we can actually know how to follow. He puts the onus back on us. He's like, listen, if we're following in step with Jesus, if these qualities of faith are ours and are increasing, then we'll see in the ones that we follow and the, in the what, things of the world that shape us and draw us into and give and foster desires and lead into our mimicking, we will see where they're off. And we'll stay fruitfully and effectively connected to Jesus. That's what Peter wants. He doesn't want them to be some combative group that now goes and charges and nails to the wall every, um, every false prophet and heretic. He says, no, listen, these things will become completely evident in the light of Jesus. And if you are increasing in the qualities of the faith, which, by the way, seems very much different than the idea of, a, of a, like a witch hunt combativeness. If you go into, let's look real briefly in, in chapter 1, verse 5. Here are these qualities. He says, for every reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue or excellence, and with, and with virtue, with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. That's how you combat false teachers and false prophets. Not, not by jumping in and playing the game of the world. That's what he'll talk about. But instead, following the life and model of Jesus. It's in the life and relationship to Jesus that we discover the one to mimic. Not just in action, but ultimately in desire. What Peter has come to experience as a fellow servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, a spiritual companion and apprentice like you and I, is that what Jesus invites us to imitate is his own desire. The spirit that directs him toward the goal on which his intention is always fixed in the Gospels. To resemble, to image God the Father as much as possible. To do only what the Father would have him to do. That's what Jesus' desire is. That's what Jesus longed for. And what Peter says is like, listen, if, if we are able to walk in a way that keeps us connected into this life of Jesus into Jesus with us. Then our desires allow us to, to be fully immersed in this world in a way that's fruitful and effective.
To become fully our God-breathed selves under the muddy waters of here and now requires us to have one, our attention fixed on one who is the one that shapes our life. Listen, Christendom, even competitiveness, human competitiveness and religious combat mentality has influenced many fellow Christians to read Peter's denunciation of false prophets and false teachers as some sort of oddity, like as this weird, unpalpable thing, um, or just this kind of anger overthrow, as if what he's pointing out is the exception rather than the rule. But that is simply not the case, nor has it been in the history of humanity. Listen, the water we swim in is this, as humans is muddy. The water that is Greek faith and family swimming in is muddy. Our families, communities, leaders, and even our own hearts crave something that is not quite whole or holy with what is good, true, and beautiful. And so easily mistaken for such, we have mixed, we're mixed with desires for good and evil. I mean, that's that's the, the stories that, the origin stories that Peter will point out that the reality of our life is mixed. And that we're often, if we're honest, unsure of which is what until we look back in retrospect. But Peter says it doesn't have to be that way. That we don't have to be ones who go through life, go after things in life, try to live of life, hoping that we're on the right path, doing the right thing, only to know in retrospect if our motives were pure, if what we desired was, the, was holy, like Peter says, there's actually a way of living that ensures that's true. <laughs> Peter, in step with Jesus, assumes that clarity exists. I mean, again, what did he say? Like, if these qualities of yours are increasing, you will be, it'll keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord and Master, Savior, Jesus Christ. Like, he assumes there's that much clarity that he can say it with that much bravado Actually, there's no bravado. It's just clarity. It's like that confidently. Like, if these are yours, you're good. You're good. And so at best, as the best he can, to the women and men he loves and serves, he reminds them of the earthy reality of their existence, the dignity of their daily calling, and the surety of their living, livableness of their faith that comes through apprenticeship, through imitating Jesus, our Master. That's what I hope Peter will do for us too. So this week as you read 2 Peter, my encouragement will be this week as we get into this text, as we begin to get into the minutia of the text a little bit in order to help us understand it. Because though we, um, we are in a context and a culture more like Peter's than, um, than sometimes we like to admit, we still tend to get lost in some of these, these details. So we will try to bring out some of the clarity that, that Peter's bringing out. And I'll try not to do it as verbosely, um, um, but in line with Peter as concisely and clearly as possible. But my hope is that we will enter in this text over this next week, um, that you'll read it at least a couple times over this week. And, and even as we go throughout the whole, the whole series, you'll, it's a super short letter. You'll take time to read it over and over again in its whole. And more and more as you read it over and over again in its whole, you'll see what Peter's actually trying to do. You'll experience the clarity of, of what Peter's trying to make clear. And you will see, as Calvin said, that in every letter, of every sentence of this epistle, the Spirit of Christ just, just exudes. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Son. 
Your son, Jesus. By his life and death and resurrection, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Who himself has called us by name to share his life, a life that is beautiful, splendorous, glorious, and a life that is, in many ways, in pursuit of more, but more of you. Lord, it seems trite at times, I think, to, to say as Christians that Jesus is the one we're meant to follow, that he's the one, the one, only one we look to of what it looks like to really to be who you've created us to be. And so help us, Father, if that feels trite to us, to for the next at least few weeks, Father Lord, just to... Um, to let go of whatever ideas of what we think that means and hold on to the reality of Jesus, to let the words of Jesus and the words of those who have followed Jesus ground us and shape us, help steady us as we build our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ. All this we pray with humility, with gratitude, um, and with longing. In your son's name, amen.